several years, well, many years ago now, uh, I did a series uh, going through the book of Numbers and looking at much of the uh, symbolism, the pictures uh, that are drawn there of Christ and how those work out. We're going we're gonna to return to that this morning just for this one Sunday, take a break from our study through Romans. And so as we begin doing that, let me have you imagine a desert landscape. The noonday sun is hot overhead. It heats up the barren ground and soaks up the moisture from the ground, if there is any, like a sponge. The horizon, as you look ahead, is undulating as it does from the waves of heat rising up from the desert. And if someone were out in the middle of a day like this, it would be safest, it would be healthiest for them to seek shelter in the shade and continue their journey in the cool of the night. But you do not have that luxury, because as a look behind you into the distance confirms by the presence of a cloud of dust, you are being pursued. You know by whom... And you know with what intention. And so you must go on. You must go on quickly. You must run. You also know your destination. But it's nowhere to be seen. Only an empty expanse of desert before you. Rocks and sand and and plants. And so you run, ignoring your thirst, ignoring the heat. You run. Because you are running for your life. This morning we are going to look at the topic of refuge, the topic of sanctuary, places of refuge in old times and in all times. And for the old times portion of it and for our text this morning, we're going to turn to the book of Numbers to chapter 35. So if you haven't turned there in anticipation already, turn there now. Numbers chapter 35 If you are able, stand, please. We're going to read this whole chapter, so if it is uh, wearing on you to stand for that long, you can sit down. But let's try to stand as we hear God's Word read. And this is God's Word to us this morning. From Numbers chapter 35, uh, Moses writes, The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and the pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the city which you shall give to the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side 2,000 cubits, and on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them you shall give them 42 cities." All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be forty-eight with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger 
tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few. Each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you shall give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession." And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, how you have worked throughout the history of this world to to instruct your people then and now, to teach your people, uh, to to show us how you would have us to live and, and what you would give to us through your Son. We pray that you would be with us during this time. In Christ's name, amen. And you can be seated. 
well, a typical section, it appears, from the book of Numbers. A lot of, a lot of law and a lot of detail and a lot of, of places to scratch your head and say, I wonder what that means for me today. Well, let me begin by giving some instruction about the passage here, a little background with three points. First of all, remember that God, this is to set the context here, God has given the promised land to his people, the land where Abraham had traveled. And he stated that when they came into the land, that they would conquer the land, that God would conquer the land for them, really, and that the land would then be divided up, or was to be divided up by the various clans or tribes of Israel so that each one might have an inheritance, a portion of the promised land. At the end of the book of Joshua in chapters 13 and following, uh, after that had taken place, after the land has been conquered uh, under the leadership of Joshua by the hand of God, the land was then broken up and distributed to the different tribes of Israel, to Reuben and Gad and Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah and Simeon and Benjamin and Zebulun and Issachar and Naphtali and Asher and Dan. All of them received their uh, apport- apportionment. But conspicuous by its absence is that there is none for the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the priests and the caretakers of the tabernacle and the holy things. They were chosen by God, that tribe was, set apart by God to that particular work. Even among God's peculiar people, the Levites were a peculiar people. Um, Not peculiar in the sense of strange. They may have been, but we can't tell. But they were set apart for a particular purpose. And they weren't to be included in the census of the people. They were not to be part of the fighting force. And they were not included in the distribution of of land in the same way as the rest of, of Israel. They had no possession really in the land because their possession was the tabernacle. Their possession was the things of God. Their life was in service to God. Their livelihood came from the offerings that the people brought that they uh, received a portion of. But though they did not have a, a section of land like the rest of the tribes did, God in His grace and in His wisdom made provision for them. Uh, both for the, the Levites and for the people. They, he instructed the people of Israel to provide certain places, as we read, certain cities for the Levites. We read there in, chat, in verses 2 through 4 that each of the tribes were to allocate certain cities within their uh, plot of land that were set aside for the Levites, along with what we read, the pasture lands around the outside of it so that they could... Um, They could feed their livestock, um, and there were 48 of these cities all told. But six of these cities were special. Six of these cities, besides being cities for the Levites to dwell in, had an additional purpose. Three of these cities were on the the west side of the Jordan in the land of Canaan. Uh, One was in the north at Kadesh. One was in the middle section in Shechem. And one was in the south down in Hebron. And then there were three on the east side of the Jordan River, where the half-tribe of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben uh, took their possession. There was also one in the north up in Golan. There was one in the central area in Ramoth-Gilead and one down in the south of that area in Bezer. Six cities, 
cities of the Levites. But these cities were also designated, verse 13 tells us, that the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. The second thing that we need to see is to be reminded that much of the legal system that God set down in the Old Testament for Israel uh, in the, the Old Testament times was, was based on the principle of restitution. Um, not revenge, but restitution. Maybe restoration works better. Uh, look over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, if you'd like to turn there. Just to give you a flavor for this, part of the law that God gave to his people, Exodus chapter 22, at the beginning, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. And it goes on talking about this idea of restitution, of of returning what you have have stolen, uh, and in various um, denominations uh, to pay back what is taken. And this idea of making restitutions for wrong, and basically if you can't, you pay off your debt, you work off your debt. Uh, what wonderful wisdom there is in, in this. The victim of the crime is, is recompensed for his loss. The guilty one of the crime is punished for his crime. The matter's over. Uh, the matter's done with. As, apply, uh, as opposed to our system where we house criminals at citizens' expense with the alleged purpose of rehabilitating the criminal but with the actual result of just making them better criminals, um, while the victims have to just live with what was done to them. The biblical system of jurisprudence deals appropriately with, with all of the, the parties involved. And we might agree with Paul there, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But this biblical concept extended beyond just property to matters even of life and death. Remember back to the time immediately after the flood when God told Noah that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Um, That idea of restitution is repeated in the law in Leviticus 24.17. God said, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Again, this idea of restitution. That's the second thing to remember is that background. The third thing is that in some of those situations, the idea of restitution was made more difficult by the fact that the person who was wronged was no longer around to receive restitution. For example, he might be dead. Uh, In the case of of any kind of death, whether intentional or unintentional, they ran into this problem. And in those situations, God, in the law that he gave to Israel, instituted a, a position, uh, a, 
a, a part of a family, a part of a clan, a person in a position known as a goel, G-O-E-L, which means a redeemer. We recognize some of that. In, in some contexts, this person was specifically called a kinsman redeemer because he had to be a male relative and his responsibilities, remember, uh, remember Ruth and Boaz. The idea of the kinsman redeemer figured very prominently in that book. Um, the kinsman redeemer had responsibilities that ranged from marrying a childless widow of his brother to other aspects of this. But at times, in certain circumstances, the Goel had a very uh, particular, specific responsibility as an avenger. I'm not talking about Iron Man or Thor or Captain America. I guess it would be Captain Israel in this case. But in these situations, he became what was known as a Goel Hadam, an avenger of blood. And his duty was to avenge the death of a relative who was killed. Under this God-given law, which we read a portion of today, if someone killed another person, the avenger of blood could legally hunt this person down and kill him as a legal recourse under the law, a working out of the law of restitution. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. We read it here in chapter 35 of Numbers, but this same uh, concept is explained again in Deuteronomy 19 and in Joshua 20. This is not just the only place that we hear of this. So all three of those things are important as we come to this passage in Numbers chapter 35. And for the rest of the time, as we just look briefly at it, I want to look at two major points. The first one I'm going to call refuge in the promised land. Refuge in the promised land. We've seen that there was a need for that. As Moses writes this down for us, the, the law of restitution, the law of, of restoration, especially as it applied to death, was open to, as you might expect, misuse and abuse, whether the murder was intentional or not, whether the killing was intentional or not. People were emotionally driven, just the same as today they were back then back in the days of Moses and Joshua. And it could be the case that, well, I'm, let me give you an example. Uh, the example that Moses gives back in Deuteronomy 19, which, as I said, is in many ways a parallel account to our passage here in Numbers chapter 35. Now, remember, though, that we left you in your imagination at the beginning uh, running through the desert. Let's see why you might be in that situation. What led up to this? Well, many of you will know this story or this uh, situation that may arise. Suppose that you and a friend were on a trip to gather firewood. You have your axes. You have your means of transporting your wood back to the city. And so you both go out into the, the woods to the forest there to cut wood. And then suppose, while you are busy chopping away, that your axe head loosens up while you are chopping wood, and it flies off on the backswing, 
and nails your companion in the head so that he dies. Uh, that's Deuteronomy 19. Um, now, such a situation is an accident. You didn't intend to kill your neighbor. You had no animosity toward him. But it could be that as report of this situation, of what, what happened, the event, uh, gets back to the family of this person, that this man's close relative, his goel, becomes a goel hadam. And he is determined to exercise his assumed right as redeemer to extract justice from you. In spite of the fact that you would claim, and in fact, we know in this case it was true, that you didn't mean to kill the man. What could you do? Well, you would either be on the run forever, or you would give thanks to God for Numbers 35. Where it says, speak to the people of Israel, verse 10, and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. And it goes on and says, three on one side, three on the other side of the the Jordan River. Under the provisions of these cities of refuge, you as the person who accidentally killed someone, you could flee to one of these cities, you would be taken in by them into this city, and you would be safe from the avenger of blood coming at you, coming to get you, until the congregation, and there is probably a portion of the people from the city, could hear the case. Basically, if you were found innocent of lying in wait or premeditated murder, you would then be allowed to stay in the city of refuge and stay safe. You'd be afforded sanctuary, safe from the avenger of blood, it says here, until the death of the high priest, at which time you would be free to go home. Uh, Free to go home. In this case, the death of the high priest serves as a redemption price for such a person, his His blood, as it were, his death would end your isolation in the city of refuge, satisfying the requirement of life for life. Now, we should note here, very important, that this city of refuge was only for those whose taking of another life was unintentional, what we would call involuntary manslaughter. The purpose of refuge in these cities was to protect that kind of person from unrighteous avenging of that death upon them. Deuteronomy 19, again, which also gives us other laws about the cities of refuge, says that he may flee to one of these cities and live lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. And this passage here goes on to great lengths to to be sure that that distinction is clear. It talks about all these different ways that he could be dying, basically saying if it was done purposefully, then there's no sanctuary in the cities of refuge. A murderer one who with malice aforethought sought to take the life of someone and carried through with it, is without recourse. 
He must be put to death. When we think of this idea of refuge, of, of sanctuary, sometimes we can be reminded of, of a couple of examples in the scripture, people who don't flee to the cities of refuge, but they flee somewhere else. Remember Adonijah and Joab, if you remember them. They both fled, again, not to a city of refuge, but to the, to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, and they took hold of the horns of the altar and cried for sanctuary. It's the same idea. And Adonijah was spared because he was innocent. But Joab, who was a murderer, was slain at the altar. The scripture says, Thus take away from me and my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. And it was the same with the cities of refuge. Those who were guilty of murder would be turned over to the avenger of blood for execution of the just legal sentence. 35 uh, verse 19 says that the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him. He shall put him to death. There's much law, of course, in this passage. A lot of distinction made between who is afforded refuge and who is not. And if you, again, read verses 16 through 21, you'll see this. But you'll also notice that witnesses are required if someone is going to be turned over to the avenger of blood. Verse 30 says that if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You know, again, a, just a gracious, uh, in, it, in, its, in its willingness really to err on the side of not taking another person's life. But it's balanced with the next statement there in verse 30. It says, moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. So no commuting of a sentence of someone who was found guilty of murder, even who had fled to a city of refuge. No last-minute calls from the governor. God wants his people to know of his justice as well as his goodness and his mercy. Also remember that this is not simple revenge, the, the killing of the murderer. It's a determination made by a jury of their peers, if you will. This is not mob justice. This is according to the law that God laid down. A murderer shall be put to death. Someone who does not kill someone intentionally is not to be put to death. And they have this refuge. So let me, let me have you notice some of the things that this passage, I think, teaches us about the way that this refuge in the promised land worked itself out. Just several words here that that describe the nature of this refuge, the means of this refuge. Um, Three words that begin with A, three words that begin with U to help it be a little more memorable. The first word is asylum. You know, this, there was asylum, there was sanctuary, there was refuge afforded to people who were guilty. These cities were a refuge for the guilty. There's, there's no note of innocence here, no statement of, of forgiveness of the debt until the high priest's death. That's the only means of satisfying this. They are protected until that time. So they are given asylum. The second thing we can say, the second word is accessibility. Remember the layout here of these cities that we mentioned at the beginning and read in the passage? Three of them on the east side of the Jordan, one in the north, one in the central area, one in the south. 
uh, the other three on the other side of the Jordan, one in the north, one in the middle, and one in the south. In the geography of the land of, of Israel, then, it meant that wherever you were in Israel, there was a city of refuge no more than half a day's journey away. Again, in Deuteronomy 19, this is said to be for the purpose of accessibility, that someone who needed to avail themselves of this refuge could do so. It says, lest the avenger of blood pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life. So, so that that doesn't happen, you put these cities in places where they can be easily accessible. God provided that there would be a readily accessible place of refuge for such people. Now the third word is abandonment. Because there was a requirement of anyone who would flee to one of these cities to stay there. They couldn't get there and get their their refuge and then say, okay, I need to go pick up some things from the house and bring it back. Or I've got to be to work on Monday. You know, this person had to abandon everything. He had to get to the city very quickly and he had to stay in the city. If he left the city, he was fair game for the avenger of blood. Verses 26 and 27 tell us. That means that he had to give up everything. His possessions. You know, his family, unless they moved to be with him. His means of making a living. Most everything that he was accustomed to had to be given up in order for him to have refuge. So those are are the three A words. The U words start with urgency. We've seen that to flee to the city of refuge required the people to act quickly. Decisively, remember the avenger of blood was acting within his legal, ba- uh, legal bounds to kill the manslayer if he found him. Because the need for quick access to the cities uh, was so necessary, some of the rabbinical writings of the time indicate that the roads to all of these cities were especially well cared for and that signposts were put indicating you know, sanctuary city, refuge city uh, this way so that someone fleeing to them wouldn't be hindered. The one who would find protection in these cities, though, had to act urgently, had to act quickly, not loiter, not rest, or slow down until they came within the walls. And then, and only then, could they rest. The fifth word is uniqueness. These cities were unique in their functioning as an asylum or a refuge. Such a person couldn't just flee to any city, not even just to any of the Levitical cities. He had to flee to one of these unique cities, these six cities that were given. Nowhere else was the manslayer safe except in one of the cities of refuge, which leads to their usefulness. That sort of goes without saying, but these cities were very useful to those who needed them. Within their walls, the guilty manslayer would find refuge. He would be offered protection. Within these cities of the Levites, these six cities, for as long as was necessary, until, as the text tells us, of the death of the high priest, when the person was then permanently forgiven of their crime. The seventh word is universality. Look at verse 15 there in chapter 35. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. 
So these cities weren't just for the Israelites. They were for any sojourner among them, any Gentile among them who may be staying within the boundaries of Israel who found themselves in that situation. They could flee to the nearest city of refuge in their day of trouble and find sanctuary. The last word is utterance. Utterance. This is interesting. The the protection that was afforded to the manslayer in the city of refuge was not because there was an army around the city or because the people were hidden away in a secret place within the city, but merely because of the proclamation of God that it should be that way. God decreed that fleeing to the city of refuge and being judged innocent, obviously, of premeditated murder was all that was required in order for people to obtain asylum from the avenger of blood. So God, through this means, provided refuge in the promised land. But as we've seen time and time again, looking at the Old Testament, uh, for those of you who were with us time and time again as we look, looked at the book of Numbers a long time ago, there's something more that is behind this. The strokes of the divine brush on the canvas of redemptive history is there to draw our eyes and our hearts to something beyond the immediate context, in this case of the cities of refuge. And we see once again that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed, and in the New Testament, the old is revealed. Because there was one who was going to come who would fulfill spiritually what these cities of refuge signified physically. Because the one being pursued, of course, as we think back to the beginning of the message, the one being pursued is you, is me. The one pursuing us is, get ready for this, God himself. His justice pursues you, as it were, for your sin, and he will one day overtake you unless you find refuge in the city of refuge that he has provided. There was one coming who would fulfill that, one who would not come as a city of Levites, but as a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, because it is in reality not just God who is pursuing us, but it is God himself who is our refuge. Didn't we read that when we opened the service this morning? That God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. God not only provided refuge in the promised land, but more importantly, he has provided refuge in the promised one. The writer of Hebrews speaks of our fleeing for refuge to the hope set before us in Hebrews 6.18, which is Christ. Where we who are guilty, we are able to, to flee from the justice of God's righteous wrath against our sin and know that we will be taken in. Let's return to those words and apply them to the truth of Christ as our refuge. The same words, asylum. For us who trust in Christ, there is asylum. 
There is sanctuary offered and afforded to guilty people. It's found in Christ. Because we're guilty, aren't we? We're liable to the avenger of blood. Restitution must be made. God himself said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But wait, vengeance has not come upon you, Christian. In fact, we have read promise after promise that vengeance will not come upon you. And it will not come upon you because it has come upon your high priest. That he has died and made you innocent. His death has come once for all and has afforded you not only eternal asylum, but eternal refuge and freedom. Freedom from the very things that made you guilty to begin with. Accessibility. Remember the cities of refuge were half a day away. But the scripture says, call on the Lord while he may be found. It says he is not far from each one of us. The way to true refuge is marked clearly. We saw it last week, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be afforded refuge. The road to the divine city of refuge is on a narrow way, but it is a well-marked way. Clearly marked, well-maintained. We don't have to guess which way do we turn. The word is given to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. But whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. Come to me, he said, all who, are lab- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Clearly marked way to our city of refuge. Clearly accessible, easily accessible. The third word was abandonment. This is the other side of that. Because coming to the divine city of refuge in the promised one requires and results in a break from the past. Like those who would flee to the city of refuge, you're required to abandon the things of your past. Salvation is that we were talking about this on last Sunday. That means fellowship. Salvation is absolutely free and yet brings a demand to follow Christ that will cost you everything. Everything you hold dear, you must be ready and willing to surrender to Christ should he call for you to do so. Jesus said that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, he does not always call for us to give up family, but we need to be ready and willing to if it comes down to a choice between family and God. The Christian life is a life of abandonment turning everything over to him. God does not allow us to set aside our favorite sins and to keep them around to indulge them on a rainy day. They must all be slain. The ones that we love. The sins that we hold dear. And what a shameful thing for us to admit even that there are sins that we still hold dear. We must be ready 
to immediately kill them, to abandon them. Especially any attempt on our own to, to save ourselves. We have to say with the hymnist, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. The fourth word is urgency. Just as there was no time for delay getting to a city of refuge, there's also no time to delay in looking to Christ for ultimate refuge. Paul says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. To flee to the city of refuge required acting quickly and decisively, and the same is true regarding fleeing to Christ. Delaying one moment may result in you being overtaken and to bear the punishment for your crimes forever. The fifth word, again, was uniqueness. And again, here is the Christian message, isn't it? That there is one God and one mediator between God and men. That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The message is narrow because the gate is narrow. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. If you attempt to flee to any other city, If you attempt to flee anywhere other than to Christ, you will be lost. Christian, don't be ashamed of that message. Six was usefulness. Again, in the desert of ancient Israel, the city of refuge was of great use in saving one from death. But for those who take refuge in Christ, there is a far greater usefulness in that it saves us from hell. It saves us from God's wrath. And so we ask along with the New Testament, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God has graciously, lovingly given us Christ and has given Christ to us. Seventh word was universality. The city of refuge, remember, were available for all. This takes us back to our studies in Romans. Because we read here in chapter 35 that it wasn't just for Israel, it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles. It was for anyone who recognized that they were in a situation and fled to that city of refuge. Christ is available for all who will flee to him. In Christ, no sin is too big, no sinner is too sinful, but that Christ will save him. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no way cast out. Amen? Finally, utterance. Just as in the cities of refuge, the protection was not based on human will, on human decree, on a strength of arms, on fortifications around the city, but on God's utterance, God's statement, God's proclamation. And it's the same way with Christ, who is our refuge, that we are declared by God to be righteous. That is our justification. God makes an utterance. He makes a statement. 
a statement of judgment, a statement of fact that we are righteous in Christ. Christian, if you have fled to Christ, your city of refuge, rest in him. Rejoice in him. Know that the death of our high priest, his death, like the death of the high priest in the book of Numbers, secured your forgiveness and set you free from any and all repercussions from the law. We've read it in Romans 8 so many times. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are within that city of refuge known as Christ. Let's return one more time to this scene with which we began. You are fleeing one who would take your life. Imagine you are exhausted from running through the heat. You are parched with thirst. Perhaps you've seen behind you that dust cloud coming towards you is getting closer. Then as you come around the corner of a a mountain or a hill or you climb up out of a steep canyon, there rising up before you the walls of the city of refuge. Sweet sanctuary. A city of the priests. Oh, what a welcome sight. Your anxiety, your fears disappear. Your exhaustion is replaced by jubilation because you know that God has appointed that there is grace to be shown to you there. Imagine how that sight would hit the eyes of a person running, looking for that. That symbol of divine protection coming into sight. That's what's before us in the gospel of Christ. As you hear of him, the walls of your city of refuge loom closer, taller, and in them we know that we are safe. There is no one who can condemn us. There is no one who can slay us as we have taken refuge in that city. The walls of the city of refuge will never crumble. They will never weaken. They will never leave you open to any who could seek your life. And there is one who would seek it. But you, Christian, have come to a city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. You, Christian, have come, as Hebrews says, to the new Jerusalem, whose king is the king of all creation and who is a strong tower. God is your city of refuge. As we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here, we are going to be reminded again that for, we, for us who have believed in Christ, we have a strong tower that we have run into and that we are safe. We have a city of refuge in whose walls we find security and freedom and forgiveness and peace. And to that, let us say, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you again for Christ. We thank you for the refuge that we are afforded in him. Not by deserving it, not by our efforts, not even by our running, but by the work of our Lord. We receive it by your decree. We receive it by your pursuit of us. And we thank you for it. We pray that as we 
think on these words. We pray that as we move to a celebration of of the Supper of the Lord that we are to do in remembrance of Him and His work, we pray that we would rejoice knowing that we are safe in our city of refuge, even your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.